Hi everyone, welcome back. Today we are speaking with Tomas Mandel. He is a senior program manager for Latin America and the Caribbean at the Center for International Private Enterprise. He is the author of the deeply interesting book, Modern Paraguay, Uncovering South America's Best Kept Secret. And that is what we're going to be discussing today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Hi, Thomas, and thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Hi, Rashid. Good morning from Falls Church. Thank you very much for having me in your podcast. It's really a great pleasure. I want to jump right in. I have a question about this. Why did Elizabeth Nietzsche, the sister of Nietzsche, the philosopher, decide to move to Paraguay, of all places, to start a new German colony? It's a good question. That's obviously goes into her internal thinking that I don't know, but she married a white supremacist. And in that period in Europe, especially in Germany, before even before the First World War, there was a lot of thinking and talking about the Aryan race and how the white people were different from the rest and they were in some way under threat in Europe and in Germany. So there were a lot of different projects all across the globe, not only in Paraguay, to start anew, so create new communities or cities of only Aryan people. Part of that effort was what brought Nietzsche's sister to Paraguay in a project that didn't last very long. As I explained in my book, the leader ended up committing suicide in Paraguay. And to this day, the little town is called Nueva Germania in Paraguay still exists, but it's very much not, obviously, thankfully, not along the lines of the founders. And is this like an area that's known well by people, let's say, in Asuncion? That, oh, we, we know how that happened. We know where it came from. Or is it ones like niche knowledge sets that you know if you only go back in history of Paraguay? Not the average citizen, not at all. And in general, it is something I explained in the book too, that there's a disconnect between the sort of what the perception of Paraguay is among Spanish speakers and Latin Americans and what the perception of Paraguay is among English speakers and people mostly in the US and in Europe. And for the latter, the perception is that Paraguay is some sort of rescue center for refugees from Germany, for Nazis, and so on and so forth. Part of that narrative that the Nietzsche experience, the Nietzsche sister experience in Paraguay is similar in that, oh, of course, they went to Paraguay, that's where all the Nazis go. But in the book, I show that that's not really the case. There were other countries in South America that were the welcome many more Nazis than Paraguay. And like I said, if you ask a regular average Paraguayan about Nazis, they probably know some story here and there, but it's not part of the main narrative or what the perception of their country is to the world, basically. You had a very interesting description of some of the informal economy and informal entrepreneurship in Paraguay. How well do you think the, what do you call the Curacineros, would perform in Hanoi? Paraguay is something that is very similar to other Latin American countries where informality is pretty large. It's depending on the country where on average, I don't know what the actual average, but it's about 50%. In Paraguay, depending on how you measure, it's 60%. There are other countries like Peru is 70%. It's, so it's part of a daily life in Latin America, but it's obviously a case very similar in Africa and in Asia. And it's basically a result of a mix of bad loss, of slow economic growth that take people to do and start in, in enterprises and try to survive and pursue economic means to survive, basically. And that's the result. Paraguay, compared to other Latin American countries, this interesting thing is that it's a low-tax country. Normally, you see in Latin America, it's a high-tax regime with a lot of regulations that usually tends to force people into the informal sector, either because they can't afford taxes, they can't afford to follow other regulations, but that's not the case in Paraguay. But also in Paraguay, that as a result of a very recent transition from a very agricultural, rural-based population into a more urban 
population is still below the average in Paraguay. The percentage of people that live in cities compared to the rest of Latin America. But that in other countries too, well, you see that transition from the countryside to the cities creates a lot of informal economic opportunities for people. And that's the only opportunity they have. Why then do you think that Paraguay has persisted in such a low tax jurisdiction, given it's surrounded by literally such very high tax countries? In a way, it's a result of the, the Paraguayan history, right? You had a very long dictatorship under Alfredo Stroessner. And the way that dictatorship worked is that it didn't have a lot of state capacity in general. It was very much focused on the military and making sure that the regime survived, the state in power. And there was not, like you see in other Latin American countries with military regimes, even in Asia and Africa, where there was a lot of investment in import substitution and building infrastructure and so on and so forth. So you have that history in Paraguay. Then you have Paraguay needs to have some competitive advantage compared to the bigger neighbors, Argentina, Brazil, where you have all these regulations. So for, I will say for the past two, three decades, that's been the strategy, the economic strategy for Paraguay is to attract investors from Argentina, Brazil, and the attraction of the sort of the incentive has been the low tax regime. Has the prominence of these, what you call career scenarios, has that decreased over time? Or is that still a pretty steady state portion of kind of workers up in the Ciudad del Este? It's been, I would say, relatively stable. And again, part of an informal economy is that it's hard to measure, right? Especially in that part of the country where Ciudad del Este is located. That's in the, what is called the tri-border area, Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay. And there's a lot of very informal economy, dark economy, if you wish, that happens. But if you see other countries that went from very informal economies to low sector informal economies, it usually goes through 70, 60% to something lower. And we haven't seen that change in Paraguay. You can argue is whether it's 40% or 50%, 60%, but it's still pretty high. And based on what I've analyzed and seen, it hasn't changed much in, in the past two or three decades. And I would expect that they won't change at least in the next decade. Can we still learn anything about Paraguay from studying small towns like Tobati? That's obviously there are limits to how much you can study a country from a city. My goal with studying this small town is called Tobati. Is I call it a Springfield, USA type of town that's very representative. And in Paraguay, it's, I think it's even more representative than other countries because Paraguay it doesn't have a lot of racial diversity in other countries. It doesn't have a lot of religious diversity or even cultural diversity. So you can take a small town in Tobati in Paraguay and it'll be representative of the rest of the country. And what I analyze in the book about Tobati is that it's very similar story to the rest of the country. It went from being very rural with very limited division of labor, limited investment, not only from locals, but obviously from abroad. And then it became sort of more connected to the global economy once the big dam in Brazil started the construction process and then working. And that developed a small economy connected to those markets. And that's led to more workers, more a higher population. And I will expect Tobati to become a sort of a regional commercial center in the next one or two decades, resembling some of the other towns in Paraguay. Something that I describe in Paraguay is that Paraguay has a very young population. So I expect the population both in Tobati and Paraguay to continue growing. And that's in general a good thing and it helps economic growth and the division of labor in general. Would you say that the Mennonites of the Chaco region in Paraguay have perhaps been the most successful community in Paraguay in 20th century. 
Yeah, for me, it's a fascinating story, the story of the Mennonites in Paraguay. And it shows that we international development experts, we like to say, okay, you need to follow this formula. You need to do A, B, and C, build a road, this or that. But at the end of the day, it's mostly about human capital. And the Mennonites show that in Paraguay, where they moved in the mostly in between the First and Second World War to Paraguay because they were looking for a place that would allow them to have complete autonomy in terms of religious beliefs, in terms of capacity to operate as the religion calls them to do. And they went to probably one of the most difficult places on earth. It's the Chaco region of Paraguay on the west side. It's very dry. It's very hard to grow anything, especially imagine in those circumstances in between First and the Second World War, the lack of technologies that we have right now. You can think of any challenges you can throw at the group of human people and the Mennonites in Paraguay, the early Mennonites face those, those challenges and they survive. Not only survive, but currently they have the, if you measure the highest income per capita in country with levels compared to what in Europe, we're talking about 50 to $60,000 a year. And they're very different from the rest of the countries. It's a very loaded, obviously, issue because it involves culture, involves the ethnic groups, and so on and so forth. But I think that the main lesson is that human capital does the heavy lifting in development. So Paraguay ranks the highest when it comes to gender ratio skewed to women in Latin America. I'm wondering if you think that has any potential drawbacks or potential extra benefits that Paraguay would get compared to other Latin American countries. That's been the case for most of the history, mostly because of the Triple Alliance War that very much killed the majority of working age men. To what extent that explains the current economic or social situation in Paraguay, it hasn't really been studied that much. What I learned in Paraguay and what Paraguayans will tell you is that one of the reasons the sort of the machismo level in Paraguay or or why men have all this autonomy or these freedoms that you don't see in other Latin American countries in terms of being free to pursue their work, their hobbies in general, while women are supposed to be working at home and doing the heavy lifting of the domestic work, that has to do with, like I said, the result of the Triple Alliance War, where there were very few men. So women had to compete for men and pretty much attract them by letting them have all these favors and having all this autonomy that you don't see in countries like, for example, in China and other Asian countries where there are more men than women because families have abortions when they know about women, they want to have men. But you see the opposite, right? That men try to lure women and they behave differently. But then again, that not only in Latin America, but in other countries, that the lack of women, of sort of participation of women in the economy, it's very much distracts or delays economic growth in general, because you have in Latin America and Paraguay, women usually have attained higher educational levels. If you go, I don't exactly remember the percentage, but in colleges in Paraguay, there's 60% usually are women. If you don't put those women into the economy and to produce and, and to bring the general labor productivity of the country to a higher level, you're going to delay your economic development if you keep them at home working on domestic chores. So I find particularly curious about Paraguay is still a formal diplomatic ally of Taiwan to this day as the only country in South America and it's also one of the 12 remaining such allies of Taiwan. Why does Paraguay, such a large country, still maintain such relations with Taiwan given all the others are very small countries? 
Yeah, I will say it right now, Paraguay is probably the biggest country in the world with relations with Taiwan. The origin of the bilateral relations with Taiwan has to do with the Stroessner dictatorship and the sort of the anti-communist fight or the campaign during the Cold War. And that then it evolved when Paraguay became a democracy or started having election in 89. It's not an ideological, obviously, and Paraguay really don't care about communism, but it became a sort of something that is part of the Colorado Party, the party that dominates politics in Paraguay, that relationship with Taiwan as in opposition to China. Again, because of the origin was the fight against communism and so on and so forth. But the debate is pretty open right now in Paraguay about whether the country should break relationship and establish relationship with the People's Republic of China. And at the end of the day, it's an economic calculus, right? In that sense, in the book, I said that it's not very clear which way it's better for Paraguay. Paraguay already has a pretty strong economic relationship with continental China, the, the biggest importer of Paraguay. Imports from Paraguay are Chinese products and Paraguay exports soybeans and cattle, not directly to China, but through other markets. Sometimes Argentinian companies or Uruguayan companies purchase Paraguayan commodities and then they re-export it. And in general, what, what we have seen in Latin America is that there's a lot of promises of establishing relationship with China in terms of investment, in terms of economic flows that usually don't turn out as promised. While on the other hand, Paraguay right now gets a lot of free money from Taiwan in terms of foreign aid and projects and so on and so forth. So yeah, I will say that in an ideal scenario, Paraguay will have a free trade agreement with the two biggest economies in the world, the U.S. and China, and right now it doesn't. So it has to be a very pragmatic decision on the side of the Paraguayans. In the book, I said that it's not very clear or obvious that Paraguay needs to establish a relationship with China. So another curious thing about Paraguay, to me, coming from a monetary economic perspective here, is Robert Triffin. When Robert Triffin essentially became the head of the, essentially the Treasury Department at the time, had a Latin American office, and the IMF was moving into a new level of engagement in the world. And Robert Triffin and people in his team decided that the standard, call it more British ideas of monetary policy and economic growth were no longer applicable and it had a a more like interventionist use of monetary policy to get going and the first country which he and the IMF and Treasury deployed these new strategies was Paraguay which I only learned very recently and I'm curious how you think that actually if you had to run a counterfactual how that impacted the growth and macro stability of Paraguay since 1950s. I mean, the counterfactual, it's, I would say, pretty straightforward if you look at the neighbors, right? If you look at Argentina, if you look at other Latin American countries, inflation has always been the problem. And you see what happens in other countries that change to dollarize, like Ecuador, El Salvador, Panama. They responded to bouts of really high inflation. And so monetary policy in general, Latin America has always been an issue, a problem, and they've tested everything there is to test. Paraguay, on the other hand, has been a success story and a lot has to do with the advice that it got from Treffin and from other advisors. And to this day, the Central Bank of Paraguay, I will say, is the better run government agency in the whole country. And the Guarani, the currency of Paraguay, has been the most stable currency in the region. Typically in Argentina and Brazil, in the past two or three decades, they have to cut zeros from their bills and create new currencies. Paraguay has not done that. So it's been really successful. And that also at the same time shows you the limits of good monetary policy. Monetary policy, it's one element of the development strategy and Paraguay has done really well in that sense. But 
But yeah, I will say the kind of fracture is pretty clear if you look at what the neighbors have done. And that in the elections in Argentina right now with Millet, the main conversation or one of the main policy prescriptions is to dollarize. It's still an important issue. And in internal conversations, when sometimes one or two drinks, people talk about the future of Mercosur, the trade agreement between Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, and Uruguay. If there was ever going to be a common currency, it should be the Paraguayan Guarani and the central bank of the Mercosur should be in Asunción because it definitely the best run monetary policy of the four countries. Do you think it would benefit the financial integration of Paraguay into the world economy if it was actually dollarized like Panama? I'm not sure, actually. Paraguay is not very connected to the global economy as Panama is, or even as Ecuador is. Like I said, Paraguay doesn't have free trade agreements with the two biggest economies. It has the main free trade agreement is with the Mercosur, and it's a very problematic, as you probably know, trade area with a lot of protectionism, a lot of regulations, when there's very little foreign direct investment in Paraguay as a percentage of the economy. So I wouldn't recommend dollarizing, like I said, because Paraguay has a pretty good stable monetary policy, and I don't see the benefits like you see it in Argentina. Argentina, there obviously the stability that will bring immediately to Argentina of dollarizing is very clear, where in Paraguay it's not that clear. So you mentioned here and also in the book that the Central Bank and the Ministry of Finance in Paraguay are the most competent government agencies in the country. So the recently elected president that just took office this week, I believe, Santiago Peña, was a former director of the Central Bank. He also the former minister of finance in Paraguay. Are you optimistic for his administration of Paraguay? Yes, I am optimistic because the foundations of Paraguay right now are in a good place. Like I said, it's an open economy with a young population, with a number of regulations in terms of tax policy and others that are open to the world economy and that will, I would expect, high economic growth regardless of who is the person. The current president is a very, like you said, he used to be Minister of Finance, he's a sort of a technocrat, if you wish. And he's there because he's supported by the most powerful person in Paraguay, that is a former president, Horacio Cartes. So Horacio Cartes, the former president, put Santiago Peña, with his support, basically assured the election of Peña to the presidency. There are many things that can change. It's hard to predict if it's going to be a global pandemic or any other major crisis. So under normal circumstances, I will say Paraguay will probably do something similar to what's been doing in the past 10 years, hopefully remain with a, in a sort of a curve of mid to low to high economic growth and avoid some of the problems that you're seeing right now, for example, in Ecuador with the influence of narco-trafficking and narco-money in politics and how much that can delay other more pressing problems like in Paraguay in terms of education, in terms of access to health services, and obviously to attract more foreign direct investment. Coming to the conclusion of the book, you discuss the idea of the benefits that Paraguay could have by trying to transform itself on a road to Denmark. Explain this idea of how and why Paraguay should use Denmark as like an ideal route to go to. Yeah, I used Denmark because I didn't want to become too technical about what Paraguay needs to do in terms of international development and so on and so forth. So it's not an original idea. It's something that an economist, American economist on land preached, developed to create a model of a successful country that is not aligned with any right or left wing ideology. It's more like if you want to become a successful country, you need to have a number of very basic stuff like Denmark has. You need to be able to provide some basic public services. You need to have some economic 
economic stability and economic growth. You need to be able to have a largely educated population and so on and so forth. But then also Francis Fukuyama in his book about the political origins of the state used that metaphor. I think it described what Paraguay needs to do. And again, it's complicated. It's not, like I said in the book, a roadmap, something you can copy and paste and do it, but it's mostly about very general guidelines in areas we need to work without getting into the more ideological conversation of trying to experiment with new ideas and so on and so forth. Because most of what we think, what we know, it works in general for international development is known. There's no real magic bullet. So that was also the reason why I used Denmark. Just follow this very practical, tangible reality of Denmark and you will be in a good place. So if there is one thing that someone who is not familiar with Paraguay and Paraguay's growth story, what is one particular thing that you would want them to know firsthand? I don't know if they don't know, and I'm sure the current president is aware of this. Access to electricity is the key to development. You can have sustained high economic growth, the type of growth that change the country from being low income to high income, like you saw with the Asian tigers, even in Europe and the U.S., without access to electricity. Paraguay has an amazing, that's described this in the book, advantage over other countries with clean energy that comes from dams that Paraguay has with Brazil, the biggest one, one with Argentina and one internal that belongs to Paraguay. But Paraguay lacks the infrastructure to connect. And, and this is something that I'm surprised that Paraguayan governments in the past decade or two have not done much to develop that infrastructure. Paraguay should be connecting every corner of the country with electricity infrastructure in the way of cables, whatever it is. Most of the cars and transportation in Paraguay should be run by electricity, not on diesel, like it is mostly in Paraguay. I don't know if the question you asked me if they knew this. I wish they would emphasize more this and work more on developing the electricity infrastructure so they can connect to this amazing resource that they have. Damas, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It was a great conversation. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.